0: Hello, you're tuned to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. We're pleased to have you join us.
1: We read the flow of thought here and he is saying that all people, regardless of nationality, ethnicity, language or gender or social status, are equal in the eyes of God and have equal access to Christ and through Christ... Stand as brothers and sisters.
0: Throughout history, different church denominations have taken varied approaches to the role of women in church service and in society in general. The Apostle Paul's comments about women in his first letter to Timothy, recorded in the New Testament of the Bible, have had a great influence and caused great conjecture over time. How should the church treat women? How should we as women behave socially and in church service? Let's join Dr. Corbett now as he continues in his series, Dear Timothy, lifting the lid on Paul's attitude about women.
1: Let's pray. Father, as we open your word now, we we do pray that I would be used by you only to get out of it what you've put in. Father, help me not to put, smuggle something in and pretend to get it out. But Lord, may our hearts and minds be open to what you've actually invested into your word for our good. So I pray, Father, that we'd have ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart that responds. In Jesus' name, amen. This is going to be based on one of the most controversial verses, really, in the New Testament. It's uh, the the bit where Paul tells women that they are to be silent in church. And we'll have a look at that in a moment. We're going to take the, the opportunity to then have a look at Paul's attitude to women, I met someone recently who said that their sister had walked away from Christ because whenever she read the New Testament, it sounded like the New Testament was against women. And she specifically said, or he was telling me about his sister's response, that she saw Paul as anti-women. He didn't like women and she as a woman couldn't buy into a Christianity that was against women. I thought that was a shame that that was the response but and sometimes people say things like that and it's kind of smoke and mirrors it may not be the actual real issue but it is something that i've encountered over the years that people particularly women have this opinion of the apostle paul that he was very hard toward women so i, I want to have a look at that but I, but i want to acknowledge that this is actually a big deal in our city There are churches that are part of denominations that have it as their denominational platform that women cannot do anything publicly in a church service on a Sunday. They can care for children out in children's church or kids' church, Sunday school. They might be able to be a backup singer or something like that, but preach, not a chance. Preach from the Word around the communion table. No way. Do anything publicly in what seems like teaching, and there there seems to be a tremendous resistance. Well, just put it mildly. So entire denominations base their views of women and their role in church ministry on these statements by Paul in First Timothy. So therefore, what we're looking at tonight is not, "Mm, it's just some theory and what does it matter, because it matters. And I recently mentioned about Beth Moore, who I've grown in tremendous respect for because her denomination, which isn't in Australia, they're called the Southern Baptists, one of America's largest Protestant denominations, forbids women from preaching in church. And she tweeted that she was going to be the guest speaker, I think at their Mother's Day service in her particular church. And when the headquarters of Southern Baptists found out about it, all, well, a raucous broke out. And it, it led to, to all kinds of things where she said enough is enough. And she left that movement over that. So to think that this verse is, yeah, well, you know, say, la vie, it doesn't really matter. Well, it actually does matter. It matters how we understand this verse particularly in the light of what's happening at the moment in our culture. We think of the episodes that have been going on in our parliament, federal parliament, where it's come out that women have been treated poorly, really poorly. When I was talking with a lawyer about this, they mentioned to me, but you, you know, essentially to sum it up, paraphrase it, you as a pastor of a church and your church, you have to get your house in order. It's no good saying it's a problem out there. It's a problem, uh, perhaps, even in our own church. I'm not aware of it being a main problem, but then again, I'm told that's because I'm looking at things from a male perspective. (laughs) Women face all kinds of what we might call sexual abuse that starts at the level of harassment. And it can be, as we heard, even at our conference, we heard one female speaker say, that someone said, you will never amount to being a good preacher because you're just not pretty enough. And you just think, eh, I don't know that Bob and I would pass as a preacher on that criteria. So, I, you know, um, and definitely Blair, I'm sorry, but, uh, but it's not the criteria, is it? It's not the criteria for judging anyone. So here's what we're going to do. It it looks like we haven't really got an argument with Paul because it sounds like what he is saying is so black and white, easy to understand, that how on earth can we take a different opinion from the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul, writer of 70% of the New Testament. But here's what we've got to do whenever we're confronted with what we might consider to be a controversial scripture. And it's controversial Because what I want to show you is it's not the sum total of what the Apostle Paul said about women or women in ministry. And having said that, what if, what if it was, what if this was plain? What if Paul was actually making the case that women should never teach in a church? They should never oversee men. They should never teach men or anything like that. Should we say, well, that was yesterday's culture, we're living in a different culture, we see things differently. The danger with doing that is where do you stop if that's your approach to Scripture? Because that is exactly the argument that people who have a completely different view of sexuality use to also say that things that Jesus and the New Testament condemns no longer apply to us today because we've moved on, we have, and the word is progressed, on past that. Well, I don't think that's how we read scripture. We have to be able to read scripture in a way that is able to determine the difference between something that was culturally relevant and also how we apply it today in also a culturally relevant way. One of the things that I've been emphasizing when we approach scripture is that we, and it really is critically important to start here. We answer the question, who is this written to? Who's it written to? On one of my YouTube clips, one of the first things I said is, is exactly that point when it, when it was responding to the claim that Bill Gates was the biblically prophesied Antichrist. And one of the first things I said was that cannot be true because the book of Revelation was written to seven churches addressing their issues Talking about their future and addressing things that were taking place in their world at the time of writing. Therefore, it could not possibly be Bill Gates or anyone else who was fulfilling the things that the Apostle John wrote to them. And a lot of people have taken issue with that and said, no, no, the Bible is relevant for us. And I have no dispute. But that answers the next question. Not who's it written to, we answer that one. So we understand that Philippians was written to the Philippians and, and, and Hebrews was written to the Jews in Jerusalem primarily and then scattered around the empire, but written to Jews. And we can see that First Timothy was written to believers in Ephesus. And this is, this is really important and I'll show you why in a moment. And then we have to ask the question, so who's it written for? And that's a different question because all of the Bible is written for us. All of it. Every bit of the Old Testament is written for us. Every bit of the New Testament is written for us. Therefore what I'm going to say is that this particular controversial passage here in 2 Timothy you might want to open your Bible to this is for us. And we we have to answer that question what's it there for us for? So that's what I hope to do as we look at at this now. So how do we determine the difference between something that we can say yes that applied applied to them but it doesn't apply for us? How do we do that? And I want to I want to show you how I think we can do it. So we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9 in particular. It says this, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, verse 10, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Well, how do we understand a passage like that? I don't know if there's any women here tonight who are wearing pearls or costly attire. My wife isn't, but she was this morning because I bought her something from Mother's Day that cost me a lot of money. But costly attire. Have I violated that scripture? So this is where immediately I would go, I don't think so. I don't think that's, that's the intention of what's happening here. And this is where I think we need to look over the shoulder of the original readers and try and see what did they see when Paul said this? What is actually going on? In this, in this passage. So we, we, one of the things that I, I want to point out is this thing called the Edict of Caesar Augustus. And it was, it was written targeting the citizens of Ephesus. It's, it's quite remarkable that it reached Rome, that Roman women in Ephesus were behaving in a way unbecoming of a Roman woman. Roman women, Greco, in the Greco-Roman world, were culturally there to support their husbands. That shouldn't be a surprise to you. They were there to honour their marriage vows, and, and right or wrong, and we would say it was wrong, but right or wrong, in the Roman world, it was extremely wrong for a woman to commit adultery. Interestingly, it wasn't so. It wasn't seen as so wrong for a man, a married man, to commit. And I'm going to use this other word, fornication. Now you might think, how dare, how dare they? Well, how dare they indeed? But that's how that world operated, where a man who was married uh, could. It was seen as. Not that big a deal if he took a prostitute. Now, that's just the way it was in that we, we, would, we would hope so. We would hope so because it should be. It sh- is it different now? It should be different. and should be seen as different. But here in this Greco-Roman world, the standards that were expected of a woman were much higher than a man. But there came this pushback against that called the new woman movement. And the new woman movement, it's believed, was primarily started by young widows. Their husband, who may have been much older, which is quite a common thing for a wealthy man to take a younger bride, that he dies, whether through war or through age or whatever, she is left, she's got a household, she's got substantial wealth, and... These women were going out in public without their heads covered. Which we might think, and, but in, I'm trying to help you to see the culture of that time. The culture of that time, a woman who went out in public without her head covered, and we, we, by head covering, we're talking about over the head and across the face. That that woman was seen as sexually brazen and... That was a, it became a problem in that time. And so it, it, came, it became enough of a problem that Caesar Augustus wrote an edict about it, particularly addressing what was happening in Ephesus and other places, addressing this, what is referred to as the new woman problem, the new woman movement. So women were going out wearing costly jewelry and expensive clothing and without their heads and faces covered and of course what how did that what what did the culture of that day think these women were trying to do the the expression sexual promiscuous was used to describe these women that's how they were perceived in that culture in that day so here we have that backdrop where women who didn't have their heads covered, who wore expensive jewellery, and you can imagine a woman with a head covered and face covered as well, there'd be little point to wearing you know, e- earrings and necklaces and things, because they're covered. There's no, there's no brag point there, but without the head covering and deliberately choosing to wear that, it was seen as trying to be seductive of a man. So this, this was a problem. With that in mind, I think we need to appreciate what's, what's happening here in, in this passage. we just coming down to verse 10, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And here it is, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet and we'll come to the last couple of verses in a moment. We've seen the, the concept of a householder church. We've seen that when the apostles went into a new territory, they would go into a territory, they would find a householder. This person was a person of wealth and, and means and had servants and had extended family living with them. You might recall that I showed you the architecture of this house. Here it is on the screen now, and you'll see that it has two shops at the front of it. It then has a number of rooms, it has uh, an atrium, it has a large courtyard, and that courtyard could hold anywhere between 50 to 200, 300, maybe 400 people in that area. Often have a fountain there or a a sort of a, a pool area. And, and that, that kind of helps us to understand that when he says he and his household were baptised, Acts chapter 16, Paul would have simply taken the household out into the courtyard where they would have had water and baptised them, most probably. The wife of the householder, generally the wife of the householder, had a high position in society. And one of the things that she she had to do was to present herself as Faithful to her husband, as we hope today as well, wives would do that. But in that culture, it was incredibly important. So it was, all, it was really important when she went out in public, that she was going out usually with a male escort. So if there was a, uh, I won't use the word slave, I'll use the word servant. If she went with a servant to the marketplace as a, a chaperone, that she was being guarded and protected. And her reputation was intact as well. So she had to show a degree of modesty in public. It was really, really important. So when we we read a passage like this, it sounds pretty black and white, doesn't it? It sounds like Paul saying, nope, women cannot teach, cannot preach. That's the end of it. So how do we then apply the principles of God's word in trying to understand, is that text something that is just grounded in... A cultural thing that was happening there that Paul was reacting to, because it does seem that Paul was sensitive to this edict of Augustus. It seems that he was saying, "Hey, look, this is an issue, and I want the women, Christian women, not to rock the boat with this one. Don't go out looking like you're one of these women who are part of this new woman movement, uh, committing sexual promiscuity and and." usurping perhaps authority that that in that culture men had. So how do we, what do we do with that? Here's the principle that we we have to look at the, firstly, the overall message and then put it in, in light of that. So this is what I want to do. I want to use an example of that. So note these following verses of scripture. This is from Romans chapter 12 and verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, which means arrogant and proud, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. This is a couple of chapters down. This is Romans chapter 15, verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. This is Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, where he says, Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. What do you notice about those scriptures? What are they saying? What are they telling us that the scripture is wanting us to do? Anyone? Don't rock the boat and be Christian Christian by doing what? And living in peace and harmony with each other. Now, I'm just using that as an example to show you, here's here's three or four scriptures. Very quickly, you see, it's the same thing. Different audiences at times, but it's the same thing. So here's the problem. Greg Kokel, who um, we had here as a guest once, says, and he's written a little book called Never Read a Bible Verse. And it sounds like never read the Bible, but that's not what he's saying. Never read a Bible verse, because if you take a verse in isolation, out of the context, you don't put it in the light of everything else that the New Testament is saying. So it seems like in this instance, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 down to verse 15, that Paul is saying something like this. I want women to be culturally sensitive. So if we read the last couple of verses in this chapter, this is verse, uh, if we see uh, verse 13, this will be the last three verses. Having, having told women that they are not to exercise authority over a man, but rather she is to remain quiet. And I want you to read that now, looking over the shoulder, knowing that that the edict of Augustus has been issued. And Paul is essentially reinstate, restating that edict. So, I also want you to see that he's not for the oppression of women. He's not. Because here's some of the passages, and I won't go through them all, but some of the passages that show the other things that Paul said about women Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female you are all one in Christ Jesus. And again, we have to look at that and go, what is the intention of what Paul is saying here? Because he's clearly not saying there's not dual Greek, is he? He's clearly not saying there's, there's no more slaves. There's no more freemen. He's not saying that. He's not saying there's no males and there's no females. And he's not He's not saying that there's no difference between people. He is. But what is the context of what he's saying? We read the flow of thought here and he is saying that all people, regardless of nationality, ethnicity, language or gender or social status, are equal in the eyes of God and have equal access to Christ and through Christ stand as brothers and sisters. That is the context. That's what he's saying about women. This might seem like, uh, again, we, we read it through our 21st century eyes when Paul says this about women later on in First Timothy. Treat older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. It's my pastoral hope that the young men of our church do that. And not just the young men, the old men as well, older men. Treat older women as mothers, treat younger women as sisters in all purity. I was really thrilled when we had Ian this morning lead us in the state national prayer and he made a reference to the mothers in this church, many of whom were mothers in Christ to him, spiritual mothers to him. I thought that was was so clever. Not not just being clever, but but such a revealing thing that there are uh, women who can have that role in a church, spiritual mothering. We note in Acts chapter 21, verse 9, that Philip the evangelist, who was an evangelist pastor or a pastor evangelist, he had four daughters. And it says this simply in in Acts chapter 21, verse 9 that he, Philip, had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Can you imagine the church service where they are and they've just received this epistle from Paul saying, women should be silent in church. I do not permit a woman to teach where men are present. And here's four prophetesses. What are they supposed to do now? Do they mime it? You know, three words, first word. Because they can't speak. What do they do? Well... Clearly that's not what's happening here. You, you're only known as a prophetess if you're a woman and you prophesy. Then in, in Acts chapter, sorry, in Romans chapter 16, I count in fact, I, I went over it again uh, this afternoon. I, I, I highlighted in my Bible the women. That Paul refers to in Acts chapter sorry, Romans chapter sixteen, verse one, uh, and chapter sixteen. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Centria. And the interesting thing is that word describing Phoebe, and it is definitely a female name, a woman. The servant of the church at Centria, which is just north of uh, Corinth. Uh, that word is exactly the same word that Paul uses to describe himself, servant, doulos. It's the same word. He's describing her as, as doing exactly what he does. And she was, she was quite possibly the one who brought the epistle of Romans to Rome. She delivered it. Big responsibility for a woman. Big responsibility going on here. So I want you to also think about this. When Christ rose from the dead, I think he was still in control. So much so that in his ordained, decreed plan, he ordained that the very first witnesses to his resurrection appearance would be women they were the first ones and not only that they were the first ones to declare the resurrection of christ not just to the world but to the apostles to the apostles they went back and reported to the apostles they taught the apostles that jesus had risen from the dead foundational christian doctrine Interesting. So we have that. We have an account where in Acts chapter 18, Apollos, known as one of the greatest preachers of that day, but he was wrong. Didn't have all the information. Who corrected him? Priscilla. Priscilla and her husband Aquila going, yes, she's right. (laughs) It was Priscilla who did it and it states it. And whenever they are referred to, she is always mentioned first. Priscilla and Aquila, her husband. So we we have this theme running throughout the New Testament. And even in Paul's own addresses, when he's addressing the church leaders in Romans chapter 6... As I mentioned, I went through and I highlighted them. And there's 12 women who are considered to be the leaders of house churches. We have people like Priscilla and Aquila he mentions in verse 3. We have uh, Mary in verse 6. We have Junia in verse 7 who's described as of note as an apostle. And there's a translator's note on that because that's difficult for male translators to get their head around Particularly when they have a disposition that women can't be used by God, then we have uh, Tryphena and Trifosa, then we have Persis, which is a, a woman's name, and there's a reference to the mother of Rufus, who Paul says, who has been a mother to me as well, Romans chapter sixteen verse thirteen. So we we, we have women held up in high regard in Scripture. So we need to always take an obscure verse and go, that doesn't seem to fit the overall message of the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes Joel where he says, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And he mentions the spirit coming on sons and daughters, young men and old men But the whole point is that it it comes upon women as well. The day of Pentecost, on on that original day in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit came on women as well as men. But if women weren't allowed to teach or preach in church, if they weren't allowed to teach and preach and use the gifts that the Holy Spirit was giving them, why would he do that? Why would the Holy Spirit do that? So there's this principle called the analogy of faith. The analogy of faith. And it simply means that we compare Scripture with Scripture. We, we compare the analogy of faith. In fact, it's actually, technically, it's the analogy of the faith. And it's based on Romans chapter 12, verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion... And that word proportion is the Greek word analogia, analogia, to our faith. But the word our is actually a definite article. In other words, it's the faith, according to the faith. So I used to read that saying, well, you've got to really, really believe that the prophecy you're about to give in church, in a Pentecostal church, this happened a lot, that you really, really, really believe it's from God. That's prophesy according to that faith. But that's not what it's saying. It's saying that if someone prophesies in church and it doesn't correspond to the faith revealed in God's word, then you are to judge it as out of order. It's the faith, which is another expression used for for Scripture. And you actually see that in Scripture as well, where it's described that, in fact, in the, uh, the next couple of chapters, the, the word of God is actually described as the faith. Some, uh, uh, for example, First Timothy, chapter four and verse one. Some have departed from the faith. In other words, they've departed from the word of God. So here's the point: no verse of Scripture should ever be interpreted using the analogy of faith. No verse of Scripture should ever be interpreted in a way that it contradicts the overall message of Scripture. So, for example, if you took something out of James that said faith without works is dead, therefore the only way you can be saved is to work, to do something for your salvation, then you're missing the overall message of Scripture which says it's by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone. So the Apostle Paul actually presents women as having equal access to God And having, here's a key word, and I like this word, complementary roles within the church. Complementary roles. In other words, I've heard someone describe the church as being like different shaped jigsaw pieces. And on our own, yeah, it's not much of a picture. But put us together and the picture begins to make sense. And God will bring in men and women, young women, young men, Older men, old women, and together we complement the grace that God has given to each of us. So, what's our response to people who say that the New Testament forbids women from teaching in a church? Our response should be that is not the overall message of the New Testament. It is not the the, the revelation that we get is that not only women to teach. But we see women taking what clearly would have been a householder role, Romans chapter 16. We see that God calls men to lead, clearly, no doubt. We see that God clearly calls men to teach and preach, but not at the exclusion of women. And here's one of the things that I don't understand. In some of the churches that hold to this, they say a woman cannot teach a man based on that that obscure verse in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13 or so. Um, but yet she can go out to kids' church or Sunday school and teach young boys. What's the difference? I don't understand the difference. All right, I want to finish up looking at just the last couple of verses in this passage because they, give, they get even more obscure. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. huh? But here's what Paul is saying. It's actually, in the context, it shows equality between men and women because Paul is saying Adam was not deceived. And what did he do? He sinned. The woman was deceived. She was tricked, but Adam wasn't. So now tell me, male or female, who gets in the better light here? When you realise that Paul is actually saying, men, if you think you're so smart, you better, you better realise that our forefather, despite so-called being the male head and with all the fount of knowledge, he willingly disobeyed. But women... Were deceived. Um, And so in this culture, the other thing that I haven't mentioned is that women were rarely taught to read. They were rarely taught. And here we have the New Testament and the example of Jesus teaching women. This was elevating women, and we see this this happening. Here's the last verse that we see here in chapter 2. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. And again, you could take that verse and it's a pretty controversial verse. Let me get this right. A woman will be saved and go to heaven if she has lots of children. What do you think of that, Brooke? (laughs) Oh dear. (laughs) But here's here's where the translator has, this is ESV, and I, I generally love the ESV, but here's where we have to go, if... If that's what you're telling me, that text says, it doesn't fit with the overall message of Scripture. See so here's how one scholar says that verse should be understood. Women are the ones who bear children, but all women will be saved because there was a woman who bore a child. Through the child that was born of a virgin woman, all women who bear children will be saved. And the result of being saved is that the fruit is that they'll live in faith, love and holiness and self-control. And now can you see that in the light of Caesar Augustus' edict where he was trying to address those very issues of women looking like they were living promiscuous, a flagrant life. And here Paul is saying, no, Christian women should be the epitome of what it means to be a woman living in purity saved by the birth of one child and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we mull over this passage as as we begin to distill this passage in our soul, may we begin to see the heart of what you're saying that you not only want to use women, you have used women Father, we thank you for the women that you've blessed us with in this church, women who have a capacity and an ability to teach God's word, preach God's word, share God's word, raise their children by teaching them God's word and by being a blessing to this church. So I pray, Father, that this week we might go in the confidence of your word that it doesn't contradict itself, that it is your word, it still speaks today, And that, Father, you give us the wisdom to be able to apply it to our lives today. May we know the love of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship with the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name.
0: As we've heard tonight, Paul was addressing the Ephesian household church and there were some significant cultural elements in play that we need to consider when reading the text. But importantly, there are also timeless moral principles that we should not be glossing over. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church, president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.